1: Hello and welcome to another episode of Queer Talk, a queer podcast that brings you positive news stories and fabulous interviews. Hi! Hi.
0: Today we are joined by Matthew Hodson. Matthew is a true icon in our community, spreading positivity every single day online as a HIV positive man. Matthew is also the executive director of AIDS Map that aims to change lives by sharing information about HIV and AIDS. Matthew's like, yes, great, great introduction. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah that's,
2: that's, that's fabulous. Yeah, that's um, who I am. Forward. I like the icon bit.
1: <laughs> <laughs> Spencer likes to um, throw compliments where he can. Absolutely. So welcome to Queer Talk. It's great to have you here. It's also LGBT History Month and we're excited to travel back in time with you.
2: Yeah, that's what's happened recently is I watch TV shows and suddenly they're time travelling to times that I remember and I'm thinking that never used to happen. Yeah. like <laughs> so That means I'm really proper old now, doesn't it? <laughs> <laughs>
1: Be, it, it must be quite weird to see stuff happening in the 80s 90s and being like oh, I, I actually lived through that
2: well i mean particularly right now because it's the Sinners on tv and and the central character in that is five years older than me so it is slightly to remove but i i recognize those people i recognize those venues i recognize that life and the and the way that hiv gradually creeps into their lives it feels very very real very true to me sure
1: i did see that you posted a photo of ollie alexander and then also yourself when you were younger and uh, the similarities just between the visual similarities between the two of you is um <laughs> remarkable
2: <laughs> well as i say uh, the ollie alexander character is older than me but i mean yes it was it was that kind of that, 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 that flash of, um, of, of recollection as I was watching it. I mean, I, and also, like the Ollie Alexander character, um, I went to drama college, um, you know, so that was also a part of my life. There had, in uh, episode two, um, there's this bit where they get their equity cards and I remember that happening for me as well and the great excitement about that. So I mean there's, it's more than just the HIV, it's also about kind of coming out and coming to terms with being gay and the friendship, families that you build within our communities and so that is all very familiar.
0: Before we go into this in more detail, for our listeners, could you paint uh, a brief picture? I'm sure there's loads of complexities to, as to what life was like in the 80s and I'm sure we could talk for hours. But um, what was life like growing up as Matthew Hodgson? What's your background?
2: Well, so I was born in 1967. So I was born in the same year that homosexuality was partially decriminalised. I, I was born in London. Um, so I was born kind of, you know, in the epicentre of, of, of gay life as it was back then. Uh, not that that was something that I was particularly aware of. As I was a teenager, I was, it was before AIDS, so I remember the time before AIDS, and when I was 15, I was dating a girl because, yes, I did used to date girls, and she told me that she was bisexual, and and I said, oh yeah, yeah, me too, because being bisexual was seen as cool yeah. then, and um, and I thought, I, I think I knew that really probably if I could have found the words and if I could have been truly honest, I would have known that I was gay, but I it was a different time. There were no gay role models back then, so but bisexuality that kind of seemed like a kind of a, a, a nice place to be and there was david bowie and i was really into david bowie so kind of being like david bowie was as good a thing as i could imagine Hmm. and she said well have you done anything about it and i was like no but i will and so that kind of that actually spurred me on and so i i went to heaven i thought I'm gonna to go to I'm gonna to go to a nightclub and I'm gonna have some of that gay sex which everyone's talking about. <laughs> so I went to heaven and I was you know, so ridiculously naive because I just didn't understand the terminology. I'd bought a copy of Time Out to see where to go. And they said heaven and they said it was cruisy, which I just assumed meant that it was men dressed as sailors. <laughs> um, of course. And awesome. and, and it was full of clones, and I thought that would be people who looked like David Bowie, because I thought that's what a clone was. And then you get there, and there's all these men with their moustaches and their check shirts, and they're all really macho, and I, I wasn't expecting that. I was expecting it to be kind of full of sort of, kind of John Inman types, you know, kind of sort of, you know, fey, effeminate uh, kind of gay men. And instead, it was just, the testosterone was just overpowering as you walked in, and it was like really exciting, and I was like, oh my God, what's, what's all this about? Anyway... So I met a guy there. Bear in mind, I was fifteen. I met a guy there. He was a photographer, for, photographer from America. He was over in London on an assignment, and you know, he bought me a drink, and we went back to his hotel room and did what young gay men are eager to do. Um, and that was that. And because he was American, I never saw him again. And then the following week. I was watching TV and there's this Horizon documentary uh, called A Killer in the Village. And it was the first documentary, I believe, that was shown in the UK about AIDS. And it said there's this new condition which is affecting people, and you get it from having gay sex with Americans. Wow. And I thought, oh Christ, what have I, you know, I. Literally, I mean, you know, at that point, you know, it wasn't called HIV. They hadn't identified the virus. It was just this killer, this gay killer. And yeah, I thought I thought I was doomed from the start. So that was a bit how it was kind of being me. You know, and I then didn't really have sex again with with another man.
1: Did you find that scared you from having sex?
2: No, I, I it scared me. I mean, obviously, it really scared me. But, but then it wasn't like it was in the news every day or anything like that. It wasn't, you know, because this was... What, 83? So, the iceberg and the tombstone, that was 1987, so that was quite a bit later. So, although it was something that was starting to be talked about, it wasn't talked about a lot. And because I wasn't, I didn't have gay friends, I didn't hang out in gay venues or anything like that. So, after this American chap, I did have romances, but they were with people my own age, and like we, it wasn't like kind of another part of being a part of a gay community it was all very furtive you know it was kind of fumbling under the sheets type things which you do as a, as a kind of a young teenager and particularly when there weren't venues that we would want to go to and it wasn't like there was there was no internet there was no grinder there was you know there, you just didn't have those ways of meeting people and i was too young to go into a pub and i was also many years below the age of consent at the time which was 21
1: yeah you you're saying that that happened to you when you were 15. But like, at what point did you become actually part of the gay community in, in a way? Was there a process of you coming out, joining the gay community, going to venues and stuff and kind of integrating yourself into that a bit more?
2: I mean, I think like for, for most people, kind of coming out isn't a, an event, it's a process. So I went to university and I did join the Gay Sock. Um, and I started dating uh, a guy um, a chap called Brian who actually is still one of my very best friends uh, which is lovely and then section 28 happened and so I was a first year student at university when section 28 started its path through parliament that was the pivotal moment for me in coming out because before then I was exploring my sexuality and I was kind of trying to work things out and I was you know, enjoying dating my boyfriend and and all of that. But then we were under attack. And I thought, I can't defend myself against this attack if I have to keep that part of myself private and that part of myself was my sexuality. So I said, that was when I came out. And I came out so that I could be visible and outspoken about Section 28 because it was an extraordinary time because it, it felt like we had been on a slow and gradual path towards equality since 1967 and perhaps things were moving in the right direction and then suddenly there was this big reverse and obviously Section 28 was partly inspired by AIDS because they would talk about it it wasn't within the wording of legislation but it was this underlying current that children need to be protected from homosexuality. And part of the reason for that was because if they're gay, they'll only get disease. So I felt like I needed to raise the flag, as it were. Mm, Uh, It wasn't a rainbow flag in those days. It was a pink triangle in those days. Uh, and, and And I guess that's something which which I, I feel really conscious of i mean uh, um, that as i say before before section 28 before aids it felt like we were on a path towards greater equality mm-hmm. and then there was this quite dramatic re- reverse and sometimes you know i find myself talking with people and they kind of go well everything's fine you know we've got gay marriage now we've got an equal age of consent now and and it's all great and that's we're not going to go back on that and i'm like don't be too sure we're not going to go back on that yeah. And if you look at what's happening with trans people right now, you look at the recent decision in the Tavistock case, so that young people can no longer access puberty blockers. Yeah. And you're thinking, well, actually, that's just a thin end of the wedge here. And we, I can easily see pathways where some of the rights, which we now enjoy as LGBTQI people, will be erased. And you know, it's boiling frog syndrome. At what point do you stand up and say, no, this is too much? And I, And I give credit to our communities because I think lots of people are standing up about the trans issue about the have a stock decision and saying no we will not stand for this mm. but you know it's really important that we may remain vigilant about our rights
0: yeah do you think when you said that it was a deciding moment when section 28 kind of came into play that you were like I need to own my sexuality now rather than keep it private part as being part of like the the LGBT society at the time do you think people kind of dissipate, like kind of hid that more? Do you think they went back into themselves so that, you know, they could remain safe? Because I'm quite, I, I admire the fact that you decided to step up and come out and go, right, this is my fight. I need to stand up and be me now. Was was that uh, quite a general consensus or, or did it not work for everyone? I guess
2: my perception is it didn't push people back into the closet, apart from maybe possibly people who were directly affected, i.e. teachers, they may have felt less able to be open about their sexuality as a result of section 28. I think for, certainly for my contemporaries, uh, those of us who are out, we just became more militant. But I think it's quite easy now for people who who weren't around in that era to forget how actually unusual it was for people to be fully out. I mean, when I say fully out, as in not worried if strangers on the street recognise you as out, but also being out to your family and being out in the workplace. Those were unusual back then, yeah. pretty unusual. I mean, some of us were, but it was not uncommon to be with people, and they'd say, "Oh, I'm only gay because I have sex with men, but the rest of me isn't gay. Other than that, I'm just an ordinary bloke." And that was just—it was really dull, but you know, it was frequent. You got it the whole time. Yeah, yeah and but and I think obviously that what was really pernicious about Section 28 was the impact it had on teachers' ability to talk to children, to talk to pupils about the vast range of, of, of sexuality and gender identity that they may that these children may be experiencing and them not having the confidence that they can talk about it it underlined that being lesbian or gay or bisexual was an inferior state it was less good yeah you know, i mean how savage was that how cruel was that to do that to to children, to people who are struggling, to people who are self-harming and even committing suicide, that a government should introduce a piece of legislation which wasn't about supporting people, but was about deliberately telling people that they were wrong and sick and disordered. Yeah. I mean, it, I think a lot of people in my generation, you know, they, they they say kind of, oh, I would never vote Tory because of Section 28, and I think that's a little bit unfair because obviously that was a long time ago. But I do understand that visceral reaction. Because it was something that was so cruel. Mm.
1: Yeah, nowadays there are a lot more reasons to not vote Tory. <laughs> <laughs> but I'm sure Section 28, because of, of course it was repealed, but I'm sure it still left like a, a mark on the education system and how teachers, even though Section 28 is no longer in, in power, like the effect of that on teaching now.
2: It's left a mark on all of those kids who were in school during the yeah. years that Section 28 was in force, who we weren't able to access that level of education and that level of support that they should have been entitled to.
1: And think of all the queer literature we could have had in those years. That doesn't exist.
2: Well, people were still writing the queer literature. It just maybe wasn't being (laughs) taught in schools. Yeah.
0: it is interesting because it, it definitely has this ripple effect because i think even today even when i was in school and stuff it still wasn't spoken about like i felt like the only person sat in my class and it, when we'd had sex education or anything like that it was never mentioned and so even now whilst the you know the legislation isn't in place it's still a taboo subject in schools and in education now i understand you know legislations have come in to teach about it but it's definitely had that ripple effect from back then to now that it's it's still taking a long time to make that change back again. When you think about mm. the fact that section twenty eight came in, in and it you know, came in overnight essentially and, and everything just changed and it's taken this long to reverse
2: that I think I think it would be wrong to think that Section 20k, 28 twenty eight came in and everything changed because it wasn't like we were all being sat down for our gay lessons beforehand. <laughs> yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah. I mean I wish. <laughs> I mean that would have been great, but um, but no. I mean before Section Twenty Eight. Uh, well, when I was at school in, in for English A level, we you know we studied the poems of Wilfred Owen, and and our teacher did talk about the homoeroticism within those poems. You know, so so we've touched upon. Sexuality and, and issues around sexuality, and, and and famous people in our history who were gay, or in Wilfred Owen's case, well, I mean, I think we now read him as gay, but I, certainly I remember being taught at school. I, have, I haven't studied it further, you know, that he perhaps had never actually acted on those desires, but it's there embedded within the poetry. Yeah, you know, we 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 did a bit of Oscar Wilde as well. So I mean, you know, th- those kind of those figures from our history were talked about. But then again, you know, it wasn't like when we talked about Florence Nightingale, they said that she was a great lesbian. That was never discussed. So it what and you know the whole thing about you know kind of school, you know primary school children being given gay books. I mean that just didn't happen there were resources available if a child came from a single gender family but that was it and that was what kind of prompted it but there were there was just a lot of homophobia around and i mean that was really sickening it was it was a vote winner and if you look at the tabloids at the time i mean when i was at university the tabloids were so vicious about gay people and you know the language was just so demeaning and you know and at the time I mean queer bashing is still a huge problem but queer bashing was a big problem and, you, and you're looking at the way the tabloids dehumanised us and you kind of go well of course that's, that's always the pathway isn't it if you say that someone is less than human is less than valid then you're making them a subject for violence and so me and some friends we, we, we tried to go through the official channels and we tried to complain to the press complaints commission and we were told no no actually Puff is perfectly acceptable language You can say that. And so we got really angry and we also got, um, we armed ourselves with some pink paint and we went and we painted pink triangles Mm -hmm. all over Fleet Street until we got arrested. And that was also kind of a part of it. It wasn't that we wanted to get away with it. We wanted to get as much attention as possible because it felt like that level of homophobia was killing our friends.
0: Yeah. I imagine it was more extreme than it is now. And I can't imagine because I think it's it's bad enough now to see people receiving hate. I think the outlets have changed as well because obviously online, behind the screen, it's much easier to throw hate at someone than it, than it is to, to attack someone in the street these days. As we see a lot more people coming out and a lot more people um, embracing their sexuality, you also see the opposite side of that and you see a lot more people who are angry about it, right? So I think, uh, like I say, the outlets have changed. But for you Matthew do you see things do you see patterns repeating throughout like you know a few years later or you know however however long after something's happened do you see things repeated and go like oh god not this again
2: i don't see things coming back exactly the way that they were before so i mean it's kind of quite interesting cuz you know in some ways i think the homophobia was much worse back when i was a kid certainly the social social acceptability of homophobia yeah. you know, it' was just like across all sections of society it was deeply rooted and there was you know there, there was be allies across all sections of society it wasn't you know, it wasn't about class it wasn't about ethnicity it wasn't about region it was just but it was pervasive so i mean that was you know, that was what i was born into that's what felt normal to me i look at what's happening now and and i think it's particularly with social media and this thing now that everyone can have a platform but those platforms do uh give greater volume to more extreme views and so we're seeing this real polarization in society and the opportunities for hatred and bullying are kind of greater now i mean everyone has access to platform from which which they can use to bully people and we've seen well you know the greatest illustration of that is that a bully rose to the rank of president of the united states yeah. and that's pretty terrifying <laughs> Yeah. And you know there's there's shortly going to be a new news service uh, coming to the UK, which is going to be kind of quite like Fox News, and it's going to have some of those familiar faces, some of whom have been booted off Twitter, um, some of whom are still on Twitter, and they're going to be given a much longer leash to which they can they, they can yeah. use. And I think we I think we're going to see real debates about some of the LGBT rights that we currently enjoy. I think it's, it's going to start off as a debate, and it's going to start off on an extreme, and then you know, probably you, me, all of us will get invited onto shows and saying, no, "Do you want to go on a show and talk about whether or not homosexuals should be locked up?" And you can, you know. But, you know, it's, it's my, my instinct is saying this the direction we're going in. I don't know how far we're going to go down this line, and I don't know when we will hit the end of this particular bit. But, but yeah, history tells us we're not on a straight line towards equality. No. You know. So this kind of reverse, I think, is going to happen. Yeah, I find it quite interesting, and, and you know, I know that on... Um, on Twitter you know you and i have we've talked about kind of age and and kind of whether we how we honor ge- previous generations yeah. and and i think this is interesting is that i think every generation well, of people but i mean you i see it in in, in LGBT communities they kind of go wow we are the generation we are the ones who've changed it and you know and and that definitely happened for the generations that preceded me i mean they the generations where they saw 1967 and the partial decriminalization of homosexuality and they were like yep we've done it now and then in the 1970s it was the gay liberation front and they were like yep we've done it now and my generation was, yep, we've got pubs with windows. This is amazing. <laughs> um, you know, and, and then I see kind of future generations. And, and you know, I mean, there, was, there was an article written uh, a few years back and it was like someone saying, well, you know, yeah, I know you, all, you lot all had AIDS and it was all horrible for you. But we are the generation now and we're not interested in your moaning anymore. And wow it was like horribly hurtful when I read that I was like oh my god I can't believe that you are dismissing my friends and my lovers and you know the, everything that, the, that we went through because your lives are fabulous and you think you're the first generation to be fabulous you are not the first generation to be fabulous I want to see meet you again in 20 years time and show you this article and ask you how you feel about it then Yeah, yeah. but I also get it I get that every generation is fabulous in its own way and every generation has, chal- has its own challenges and you know back then i mean well i mean and still you know we see the the terrible toll that chemsex for example is having on current generations and that is i mean it's across the ages but i mean it's definitely it's been something of the last 15 years where you've really seen the toll that it's extracted and 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 then of course now we've we've got covid and 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 the impact that is going to have on a whole generation but i mean also the impact i mean Oh God man! I'm just so glad I'm not just coming to terms with my sexuality right now at a time when you're being told you need to be stuck at home, perhaps with your parents, you know and I mean for young trans people if they if they aren't being supported in their home environment, I mean this must be terrifying right now, yeah, so you know every generation is fabulous and every generation faces challenges, and I think that's the bit that's repetitive um, and you know we've got to acknowledge that you know we'll all experience these things in different ways and I hope I hope that just as I learned certainly from the generation that preceded me which was the the warriors of the gay liberation front and they inspired me and they pushed me forward and they continue to I I, I carry them with me and I'm really glad some of them are still alive but you know but those we lost I I carry them with me and I hope that sometimes by sharing bits from my personal history that 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 also helps to kind of maintain this narrative because so much of queer history has been Lost or hidden or erased or destroyed. We need to preserve it.
0: Yeah, this is this is one of my biggest focuses. And you know, we don't do it as much as we should. But having these intergenerational conversations, it's interesting the way you just described. You know, each generation has their own thing that they won or they did or they fought for. But actually, like I think we're we're so we so naturally just divide ourselves away from that generation, away from that group, and it makes the whole fight more difficult, right? Because if we just spoke. To more people like you, and respected your experiences, and then you, you know, you create that bond and friendship with us, and, ex- and respect our experiences. Like we, we can end up moving as a collective. But instead, I, 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 completely see each generation thinks they're doing it better, and thinks that this you know, their struggles are the first time that's ever happened. Mm and they start from they start from scratch you know in some in some places and it's just I don't know I think I think it's time wasted you know we, we waste enough time having to come to terms with our sexuality having to come out having to you know explore our bodies and and all of that as teenagers as young adults anyway and to then start this fight within our own community about whose whose struggles were, were better or worse yeah it, it all just seems like wasted time so everyone watching It's a Sin Now on
1: TV is like really connecting with what's happened because it's a significant moment. Because we, we as queer people don't often get that kind of you know representation, of those stories being told. So if everyone was more understanding of our like collective queer history, then people wouldn't write articles saying dismissing older generations.
2: Yeah. I mean, I, th- I, th- I think there is there is that thing about you know who who creates history we, we know that history belongs to the victors um, and we know that history has most often been told by white cisgendered heterosexual men and, you know, when I kind of list those categories, I meet all of them apart from the heterosexual bit. So I recognise there actually is people like me who have often written history. And so some narratives are really excluded from that. It's, it's, it's a weird thing, isn't it? Before you, you were saying kind of like, what was it like kind of growing up as Matthew Hodson, And, you know, I kind of talked about sexuality and, and kind of coming to terms with my sexuality and all of that but you know i also recognise i was a white middle class boy uh, able-bodied born in london you know i had lots of advantages i went to a pretty rough school i didn't go to a private school or anything like that people often think i was privately educated <laughs> because i've got this really stupid posh voice <laughs> but i actually went to a really rough inner city comprehensive uh, where actually um like a third of my class ended up in prison you know it was, it was that that kind of school Um, And I was horribly bullied because I was, like, had this stupid voice. But now, now, because I'm, you know, chief exec of AIDS MAP and and all of those things that come with that, and I have certain kind of responsibilities, for me, I'm amazed to find myself sitting at that table. I'm like, oh, God, what am I doing here? Because I spent so many years, like, when I was working for gay men fighting AIDS, just saying, please, just pay some attention to gay men. Just pay some attention to gay men. And it, it felt like that those calls were falling on deaf ears you know they were like you know there's only one way to do uh for sex information and it was this very heteronormative mm-hmm. thing which kind of looked down on gay sex which kind of took any of the pleasure um motivations out of kind of that public health and which was why it was kind of failing and i fought for ages to be heard and then when i realized that actually now i was being listened to i was like oh well, how, how did that happen that's amazing and it was great and then of course as soon as it happened it felt like people were saying oh it's just enough a privileged white man sitting <laughs> at the table and i'm like good point really good point and what I hope I do, I'm sure I do it really badly. I'm sure you know, I'm sure I fail in lots of ways, I've just tried to make the table a bit bigger because I think that's what it's gotta be about. You know, and and I recognise because I work for AIDS Map, having come out of working for gay men fighting AIDS. So I went from working somewhere where we were you know, by by our title alone, we were only interested in gay men. And now I'm um, actually are working with communities internationally and you know, internationally the face of someone living with HIV isn't of a white man it's it's you know the group which are most affected by HIV in the world is a black woman and it's thinking about how you create spaces to ensure that we we talk about this in a, in a way which is right and you can only talk about it talk about such matters when the right people are talking about it so i try and take some of what I got out of feeling excluded as a gay man. And I try to make sure that I don't exclude others. And I'm sure I get it wrong. I'm sure I get it wrong the whole time, but I really try, honestly, I do try.
1: (laughs) Well, from what we see, you you do a good job. Oh, thank you. (laughs) You do have a voice now and people listen to you. Did you think, say back in the nineties, that you would be what you're doing right now, being like a HIV activist?
2: Well, I mean, I, I, I think activism was always something that I did. I mean, I was you know as, as a child I was like kind of heavily involved in the campaign for nuclear disarmament and um, I also kind of did a bit of activism around uh, anti-apartheid for, for South Africa. Section 28 obviously I got kind of quite heavily involved in that and then and then went to the first uh, was, I was at the meeting which set which then became outrage. Um, so it was a meeting at the London Lisbon gay Center where we were like what are we going to do because we just you know, we haven't got equality and and I, and I do think there was a very powerful pincer movement between the activists of outrage and the much more policy oriented professionalism of Stonewall. And I think the two worked in conjunction to to force change. And I think that was very powerful. So you've been busy. <laughs> Being an activist wasn't what I did though. I mean what I did, you know, I worked for a living. And I was actually an actor for some of that time i was fairly unsuccessful as an actor but you know what i mean i had several years where that was actually was what was paying my bills and then it did change when i got diagnosed with hiv because as i say, i was fairly unsuccessful i was doing lots of pub theater i did a little bit of West End you know kind of very small roles in kind of movies and and, and things like that and i think for all actors you know who are not hugely successful you know you, you're constantly saying you know how much more do i invest in this and then when I got my HIV diagnosis, which we have to acknowledge was in the treatment era, I, you know, which is very yeah. different. It's a very different thing. So I knew that there was treatment available, but I didn't know how long I would live. And I would say this quite often. I, I was diagnosed at 30 and I thought if I can just make it to 50, that would be amazing and that was kind of where i set the limit of my expectation is i thought i've got maybe 20 years
1: did anyone tell you that or was that just something you've you kind of expect for yourself
2: well it's, it's interesting because recently like kind of I, I said something like that and someone said oh no you should have known back then mm-hmm. blah 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 uh, and, and i was like well was i not listening or or what and then there was this kind of quite famous newspaper headline in the uh, Bay Area Reporter which is the kind of queer newspaper in San Francisco and they published this headline which was a couple of months after I was diagnosed um, and the big headline was No Abits because it was the first edition of that newspaper for 15 years or something like that which hadn't carried an AIDS obituary in it and it's it's archived online so you can actually go and read that article and I was reading that article and it it was kind of nice in a way because it it's like, oh, no, I wasn't just being stupid. Actually, that was what people were thinking at the time. Medication was very new. We knew that it was effective. We knew that people, it could stop people from dying in the way that they had been. But we didn't know how long people would live for. And in fact, it was only in the UK, I think it was in 2017... That kind of public health England said people with HIV should now have the same life expectancy as someone who is uninfected so long as they have access to treatment and take their treatment as required and are diagnosed yeah. promptly it's so I mean that's you know that was only three years ago that we kind of went oh we've got confidence on this now so yeah so I, I thought maybe I'll get to 50 and you know all of the public health stuff that was coming out was like you know kind of, well if you do get HIV you know we can treat it now but the the treatment's very toxic and of course you saw people with you know kind of quite severe side effects physically manifested and so I just thought this is going to kill you know it's, it's going to take a heavy toll on me and at the time I was like I I don't know if I can deal with all of that at the same time as dealing with all the financial insecurity that comes from being an actor so I kind of said right that's it I'm not going to act anymore and I got myself initially I got myself an admin job at the Museum of London and then of course the me bit of my personality came out again (laughs) because I was literally I was just doing admin and then I was like they really, they're not doing much about LGBT here. And they put on an exhibition, it was an exhibition of uh, pride photographs, Um, and they wanted to call it Pride and Prejudice. And at that point, I was like almost the most visible LGBT member of the staff at the Museum of London, which was a large organisation. Yeah. And that just illustrates how difficult it was for people to be open about their sexuality in the workplace at that time. Um, and so they can kind say, of said, oh, we're putting on an exhibition, it's going to be called Pride and Prejudice, and it's about pride. And I'm like, what bit of this are you not getting that this is wrong? If you're doing Pride and Prejudice, you've got to talk about the prejudice. You can't just show happy pictures of yeah. people celebrating pride and then call it Pride and Prejudice like like we shouldn't be celebrating Pride, and they come, come on! Um, and I got really angry about it and wrote some harsh letters. And then I said, "This is what Pride and Prejudice as an exhibition should be," and talked about the history of, of, of LGBT in London because that's what the Museum of London does. And they said, "Okay, then." And so I got to curate an exhibition at the Museum of London. Uh, we put it on, and that was the first ever, as far as I'm aware, it's the first ever exhibition about LGBT lives that have been put on in any major museum in the uk there'd been art exhibitions and things like that but there'd yep. never been anything about our lives how we actually lived what we actually did what laws we were subject to how we met how we communicated how we loved each other yeah so pride and prejudice 1999
0: Museum of London. You're a museum curator as well.
2: Yeah, I'm. I'm like an onion. You know, you just peel off one layer and there's another layer underneath.
0: Every, everyone we speak to at the moment is just has just got all their all these layers, and everyone, everyone keeps describing themselves as an onion, and it's it's just it's it's, a, it's the best.
2: I'm like a pomegranate. I'm full of seeds. I'm not very pleasant, and my skin is tough. Listen, it's it's
0: amazing to see that every time you get angry, you go out and make a change because like I just sit here and like scream into my pillow or something, and like nothing gets done about. It. You're obviously quite a troublemaker. Painting pink (laughs) triangles on a building, you seem to be kicking off everywhere you go, but it's obviously caused such positive change. And like, again, I didn't know that about you. And curating an exhibition that, that will have opened people's eyes. It's these kind of things, like just that, that leads to education that a kid might have gone or a teenager might have gone and read that and gone wow like this is me this is you know these are my people and it's it's that kind of stuff that really inspires me
2: oh well (laughs) you inspire me because you 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 went and created your own podcast
1: oh yeah that's it that's it Matthew, you're an activist through and through aren't you completely (laughs)
0: came came out the womb going right what 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 should we kick off about first what the assaulting
2: (laughs) who's being oppressed
0: (laughs) Okay, let's let's bring it back to today. So obviously, there's been lots of ups and downs. It's been a roller coaster. You've been angry a lot of times, but <laughs> which is completely fine. It works. The biggest thing for me now is to see that you your posts are motivational every single day when you're you're working out or um, you're posting photos saying like I'm HIV positive and this is me and I'm you know living. A happy, healthy life. How does it feel for you to see just queer people being promoted on social media? I, I understand representation isn't all the way <laughs> there yet, and there's a you know there's always a long way still to go, but how does it feel for you to see queer people being queer all over everywhere? Exhibitions, the internet, social media?
2: Oh, I love it. I it, it just makes me I mean, I'm still you know, I'm the old stupid sentimental person, and when I see, you know, two men walking down the road hand in hand, it just fills me with joy, unless I'm trying to jog past <laughs> at the time, in which case i get really annoyed because, you know, we're all meant to be keeping too much distance. But no, I mean, it's just, it's it's wonderful to see how far we've come. It doesn't mean to say that I'm going to agree with every single queer person in the world um, and not every queer person in the world is going to agree with me. We're going to have differences and that is also fine. But I, I, I love it that we're telling our stories now and we're taking control of the narrative. And I think that's so important and, um, you know, because I still do some acting work and, you know, kind of, you know, working with people like Patrick Cash, you know, who has such a a brilliant kind of poetic voice and the way he has documented queer life. I mean, it's been a real joy to be a part of that process. And, you know, I mean, other people kind of we're in that circle, people like Rich Watkins, who did his kind of like Disney parody, Happy Happy Ever Pufta. (laughs) But, you know, it, and I kind of went to watch that and was thinking, oh, it's just going to be silly. And it is really silly. But then it has this at its heart, this kind of seizing the narrative moment for queer people. First time I saw it, I've seen it many times now, but the first time I saw it, it was just like I hadn't expected to be quite so moved by it. It just moves me so much to see our lives reflected in a way which they never were when I was growing up. I'm so happy about that.
1: Can we expect a Matthew Hodson play? Anytime soon, like just just a biopic, <laughs> above the stag, maybe. Um, oh well,
2: no! Well, there was one thing I, I, I would love to do because because I've done several monologues for Pat, and I was like, I would love to put them together because I've, I've played for Pat. I played like this kind of kind of GLF Gay Liberation Front activist, um, now I played that when I was like I was a mere stripling of a thing at forty six when I played it, but the character was sixty four years old, and I was I was a little bit hurt when I got cast. Um, but, um, but but it was such a great role that I was just like oh it's fine it's fine and and I I, I played this uh, uh, Daniel in the Chemsex monologues who's this like really he's like kind of a sweet and he was camp and he really helped me he really helped me embrace my inner camp person because I think before that I felt a little bit kind of worried you know oh need to be macho
1: in your own straight jacket
2: yeah uh, and and then it was just like kind of oh, it's so nice just letting all of that go and playing this person. And I think I don't think he's ever fully left me, to be honest. Um, and then there was this other character I played for Pat, um, which wasn't a monologue, it was in a play called The Clinic, where I was this kind of closeted, Tory, banker, hypocrite, chemsex... User, and yeah, you know, I mean, he was he had no soul, he was just hateful. And of course, because I played him, I kind of I understood why he was, and I kind of quite liked him in the end. But I mean, he was he did despicable things, and I thought, oh, that would be a great show to do. Like, there's three contrasting characters, three different aspects of gay life. So, I would love to do something like that. I wouldn't want to do anything about my own life because. <laughs> I've lived that one.
1: That's what I'm. That's what I choose to. do. Well, like, to be honest, I, w- I would watch anything that you act in. i not actually seen
0: you act.
2: Oh well, lots of people would say the same even after they have done. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Maybe you could make a play about my life. It would be about ten minutes long, <laughs> at, at most. But but we, we could, we'd love to see it. It is
2: interesting, isn't it? Uh, uh, I mean you you talked about kind of like on social media how I share kind of stuff with me working out and all of that. Um,
1: yeah, we're here for it. And totally.
2: <laughs> oh, thank you. Uh and I'm I'm here for all your (laughs) topless shots too. I I, I do think about it. I mean, I think about it quite a lot because there's this kind of weird thing of like kind of going, well, how much is this kind of like pretty privilege at play? You know, it's like, you know, because obviously you, I tick some of the boxes which are considered to be attractive within gay culture, as in I've got biceps like mangoes and and all of that. (laughs) it's true but on the other hand I'm also in my mid-50s now and I'm living with HIV and those are things which are kind of have been you know said by many oh you're outside you're beyond the pale of attractiveness if you're either of those things And, and, and I've seen I've seen you know I know that you have had that kind of racial stereotyping and you know, that all, all of that around, yeah. well, your skin colour. and And I see what you do, and I think it's just so empowering. And I think of all the kids who are looking at those images and you being proud and defiant in your sexuality um and i think that's going to make a difference and and i just so i mean i i actually love all that kind of body positivity and for me it's it's you know if someone posts a picture of themselves often with trans people as well i think that visibility is so powerful and but i also see sometimes the the vulnerability of the person who's posting that picture they want to say am i acceptable am i valid and I want to say, oh God, you're more than just valid. You're beautiful. You're just so beautiful. Because I think someone owning themselves and owning their sexuality and owning their their gender identity, I do genuinely find it beautiful. Yeah,
1: um, I was going to say in previous episodes we've talked about representation in TV, media, social media, and also how not all representation is good, and we really need like positive good representation. I think you are one of those people who does that on Twitter on a regular daily basis. (laughs) So when you're posting photos of you working out, being healthy, uh, you equals you, you know, get rid of stigma, you say that message like pretty much every day and that's great and people seeing that will really resonate and it could change lives because I imagine for someone who's newly diagnosed, like, it's it's a hard place to be, even when going through medication and, you know, living with HIV. There's always ups and downs. And to see someone really owning it and being like, okay, look, you can be really healthy. You can be 72 or something that you are and be really healthy... Uh, really, wow um, and looking great <gasps> oh, and having gosh. biceps like mangoes like that's going to change someone's lives sorry that, that became a read but like the, it, the, the sentiment is there <laughs> um,
0: you are it was going so well no. it was going so so well but it's, it's important to have it, that it,
2: it is interesting it's i get really interested to see how i get feedback you know on, on twitter from mm-hmm. people one of the things which I find really fascinating is because I, I sort of feel like, oh, well, you know, I'm a white cisgendered gay man, middle aged, middle class, blah, 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 in London. And I kind of expect it to be white, middle class, cisgendered gay men probably in the UK to respond. But actually the response i get from people in sub-saharan africa people living with hiv in sub-saharan africa uh not necessarily gay although sometimes gay as well but you know but young women um and 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 heterosexual men and they go you inspire me um you make me want to take my medication and you know it's when you get those lovely responses so i i mean because this is a podcast you can't see but i like yeah my my eyes just flood at this because it it's it's so moving when you feel like you've made a difference to someone that you've helped them take the actions which actually will will save their lives i mean oh god
0: it's just yeah keep crying we love people when they cry on our podcast it it, it, it gets more uh more engagement so please can if you can if you can just cry like into the microphone that would be really really good for us <laughs>
2: i'm joking i mean i am i i am like one of those incredibly soppy people I, I, is that you know i'm like I'm having a conversation about whatever and then just someone will say one thing and which like, triggers me and i'm just like
0: it's special listen it, it goes to show you don't you don't put this much work in since since the day dark you know kicking off painting on all these buildings and, and getting arrested but for it to make no difference you know it would be a complete waste of time if, if no one noticed so I think you, you should be proud of yourself and I know you don't need you don't need our validation by a long shot but um, you you've, de- you've definitely got it
2: <laughs> oh you kids <laughs>
0: Okay, so the final question is, what is next for you? I don't know if, if you're the kind of person that makes New Year's resolutions because, we, you know, as we saw with 2020, that was a complete waste of everybody's time. But what's next for you? Do you have goals, aims? What is your mission?
2: Yeah, that, it's an interesting thing. I'm not really that person who who has kind of big kind of well I don't definitely don't make New year's resolutions because it, it for me the idea that you know 2020 was this year and 2021 will be that year it's, it's like yeah it's just it it's, it's just, a <laughs> you know, the, the earth going around the sun, that's all it is. You know, it, it doesn't really make a difference. And all those people who are like going, ooh, you know, happy new year. Goodbye, 2020. I'm like, oh, honey, 2021 is going to be tough. And it is. I mean, we're only a couple of weeks in and it's really yeah. tough already. I think I probably respond to what's in front of me. I guess I don't feel like my work is done uh, so long as people are acquiring HIV when they shouldn't, when there's no need for them. There's no reason why people should still be acquiring HIV. We've got PrEP. We've got all, we've got, you know, we, when, when people are treated, they're no longer able to pass the virus on. We've got the tools that we need to end this, like now. Yeah. You know, so we just need to ensure that everyone has access to treatment, that people have access to PrEP, and then we can end this. Um, and we can end this really soon. So I get impatient that we haven't done that yet. I get impatient that people still don't know about you because you people still don't know that transmission prevents so that treatment prevents transmission and that's such an integral message because it combats stigma it encourages adherence, and it encourages countries to get their ass together and actually make sure that their populations are treated so that they can prevent new infections so i mean there's all of that still to do i've got a I've got to fight for people like me I've got to fight you know the stigma that, that that comes out of fear and ignorance that people with HIV face and so that's always going to be a part of what I do but what I don't know what I don't know is I don't know whether I will always be professionally involved in HIV uh, I love working for AIDS map because I think information is always key make sure people are informed make sure they're empowered make sure they're equipped and you know we talk about I talk about this in terms of COVID I talk about it in terms of of, of HIV, and you know, and that's kind of a fundamental principle for me. But I also get worried about other things. I, I'm really concerned about climate change, and I think COVID has kind of pushed that off the top of the agenda. But it's like, well, actually, even if we've got a vaccine for COVID,
1: fuck still, <laughs> um, it's no good. It, it,
2: yeah, it's no good if 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 if, if the waters yeah. rise. Um, and the, the the displacement of humanity that would happen if the waters rise and the impact that will have on our agricultural systems and our ability to feed ourselves i mean you know this is a crisis which which we're watching unfold and it feels that there isn't the leadership that we require you know the, one of the greatest leaders in the world on climate is a girl with autism mm-hmm. you know, a teenager and 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 she's become the voice of it because the actual leaders the people in government the people who have had power aren't doing enough about it so i mean I, I could see myself getting involved in other things or i don't know maybe just retiring and lying by pool with a- <laughs> <laughs> i don't think that's possible for you i feel it's, there's still there's still work to do there's still work to do
0: i think that's a very very <laughs> good place to end <laughs> That is the end of episode 22. Thank you so much to everyone for listening.
1: And thank you so much for sharing your stories, Matthew, um, and so candidly. So for our listeners who... Don't follow you. They probably do follow you. If I'm honest uh, <laughs> How can they follow you on social media to see all the positive representation and activism that you do?
2: Uh, well, um, I am on Twitter. I think I'm. I think I'm quite good at Twitter. So you could go and follow me there. It's at uh, Matthew underscore Hodson. Yeah. I'm also on Instagram, but I'm a bit crap on Instagram. I think because I don't really <laughs> know how to work it. So that is. It's it's like it's like my Twitter, but it's just like it's just incessant gym selfies. Although to be fair to me, I think when I started on Instagram, it wasn't just gym selfies. But then COVID happened, and you know since then I've been locked in my flat what <laughs> in, else
1: in London. <laughs> it's like <laughs> yeah. I've
2: got like, you know, right? You want me to like take photos of my crockery? It's really going to be very dull, so it's just pictures of me. But <laughs> um, that, that's uh, at Matthew Hodson London uh, on Instagram. But if you ever have any information needs about HIV, do go to the AIDS map site because you'll get all of the latest news, all the latest research and really clear and accessible HIV and AIDS information there.
0: Boom. Do not forget to let us know what you thought about this episode on Instagram and Twitter. We are on Instagram at queer underscore talk and on Twitter we are queer talk underscore. Until next time. Bye. bye.